The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by leaguetees.com.au. The retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies and all things retro footy. That's leaguetees.com.au. There's a feeling in the air that you can't get anywhere except in Melbourne. I've seen a thousand yesterdays And I love the magic ways Of Melbourne From the ranges close at hand I can look across the land And see you touch the sky From where the yellow flows To where the sunset goes We're all good neighbours passing by Makes no difference where I go not just the highlights, not just the last quarter, but a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s. The highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story. Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins. The road to victory. Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints. St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name's Dylan Leach. The Electrifying 80s, Part 2. It's not until you actually sit down and relive those great electrifying 80s year by year that the myriad of memories come flooding back. Trying to work out which was the greatest highlight of the decade is the hardest part, but they're all here. Jezza leaving the Blues from St Kilda, the Phil Carmen incident, the 1989 Grand Final, the arrival of Peter Bazusto and Ken Hunter to Carlton, the Melbourne splurge which netted Ron Barassi, Peter Moore and Kelvin Templeton, the interstate sides, the debut of Dermot Brereton, Kevin Bartlett's 400th game, the infamous Army Reserves Cup game featuring John Burke, so eloquently called by Ray Slug Jordan, and so much more. The great grand finals, the marks of the decade, the bone-jarring stouches, and the Brownlow medalists, one by one, year by year, they're all here, making up the electrifying 80s. For any football enthusiast, or merely a lover of sport, this is essential viewing. And this is an essential podcast. We've dived, we've, we dive deep into part one from 1980 to 1984. Now it's time for part two. Adam Collins and Shannon Gill join me again. Hawthorne and Essendon had grown to know each other in 1983 and 1984. And it was fitting they started the 1985 season at VFL Park on March 23. So let's get back into the electrifying 80s. And as is custom for the introduction to just about every year in the decade. We have that shot of Glenn James giving the nod, the ball up in the air to kick off season 
1985 with the uh, was a grand final rematch at VFL Park a week prior to the season start to celebrate Victoria's 150th birthday to absolute chaotic scenes to kick off the season. I just think that the the grand final replay, so to speak, I hate how it gets called that, but um, it still does to this day. That should be a, a feature every season. They tried it for a while. They brought it back in, in the early mm. 2000s, if I recall correctly, and it worked so well. Um, with all due respect, Dylan, uh, the Richmond-Carlton fixture um, no, I, I, I'm, a tremendous I'm with you. I'm with you on that rivals one. And one, it, one wouldn't want to retri- the only thing that is good yeah. about the Richmond-Carlton thing is the crowd. There has not been one memorable match in the series of those um, games. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think we get a bit too, a bit too bogged down in modern mm. footy with um, modern tradition. I mean... I'd, I'd almost happily give back Easter mm. Monday and go and go to the store gift. <laughs> uh, you know, I almost feel like it's a burden that we play every Easter Monday now. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have these games occasionally, but Anzac Day started this trend that, you know, uh, what happens on Queen's birthday Monday and so on and so on. But yeah, the the idea of there being the two grand finalists from the previous season starting the new season, I like that. And I do like the idea of them playing a week early at VFL Park. Um, as you mentioned, Dylan, the 150th um birthday celebration for Victoria which in that period of time there's also been a, a cricket tournament the world championship of cricket played for that 150th mm. birthday celebration so it was a it was a bit of a sports bonanza over February March for uh, for people because it that is that was a very early start for a footy season and you do notice uh, as part of the 150th uh, anniversary of Victoria uh, in terms of the wardrobe slash fashion for electrifying 80s, that every club had the Victoria 150 logo on their shorts that season. And it looked stylish too. And the shorts were very tight by then. For many... So, uh, to be a little bit self-indulgent, the first year I collected footy cards was 1986. So, all the photos were from 1985. And for years, I always wondered, what the hell is that thing on their shorts? But eventually, I did work out that this was the Victorian 150th birthday logo we see in that game in the season opener um in terms of the rules and outrage over the rules of the game that i mean i think that happened at the start of uh there was definitely i recall in sensational 70s the two umpire system just mm. turning into shambles um but in electrifying 80s we see the uh, uh time wasting rule um being brought into play one of the most controversial changes of the 1980s was the time wasting rule Although it had been used in practice matches, Essendon's Roger Merritt became the first victim when Glenn James reached for the book in this incident. That's got that's got parallels with today. If you think about what's happened this year with the man on the mark rule, effectively it's the same thing. In that, what was happening is is players were giving away what you call professional 15-metre penalties because that would allow everyone to, to man up on their players and stop the run-on. Uh, so th- their own, their way to curb it was, oh, let's report the player who gives away the 15-metre penalty. But that then leads to the 50-metre penalty a few years later. It's also the uh, final season. I was going yeah, to mention it- rules-wise and aesthetics of the game-wise, and 85 is actually the final season that doesn't have a 50-metre line on the ground. That's in my head how I how I distinguish between sort of modern footy and and uh, and uh, and the era before. I mean, I know there's a lot of different cues, but the 15 metre penalty 
is striking and no 50 meter arc as well uh, because when it does come in it, it 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 does change the way the game's played doesn't it in terms of the positional nature of footy in much the same way that the the, the triangle to the square in the center of the ground did the same thing uh, when that was abolished or when that was reformed i should say so yeah I, I always thought when i was growing up how unbelievable it was that even in the mid 80s they were still essentially guessing yes. how far players were kicking the you're right Colin. Uh, when the art came in, it was a far more precise. Oh, Colin, it was complete guess, and I think players guessed as well. So there was never any the, how far out can you kick a goal? It just wasn't talked about. I, it was just, oh, I think he's too far out, or he's within he's within range, and that was it. There was no <laughs> sort of guess on it, even a, a, a number put to it. In terms of modern traditions and modern aspects of football, um, there's also and shambolic scenes as well. Uh, there's also the very first Friday night match between Collingwood and North Melbourne. Probably not remembered for the match itself, but more the fans busting down the doors at the MCG because I clearly didn't know how to organise for a night game. Friday night football came to the MCG and Collingwood and North Melbourne fans went to great lengths to get into the pack stadium for the round one clash, even tearing the doors down. Well, I, I don't know. We're, we're, we're the... Redcoats not getting you know time and a half on a Friday night. I don't know what happened, but clearly they'd, they'd underestimated how many people would would show up. And there's some. My my assumption growing up watching this was that it must have been sold out. But as I've gotten older, I mean, of course it wasn't sold out. North Collingwood round one in a night. It, it wasn't. That was how I interpreted that scene. Yeah. In the film, oh, they must have sold out the, the game and thus the <laughs> chaos at the front. But no, it was just an issue of labour hire and who they had yeah. on, on and, the and I suppose time as well we, we were used point. to well, footy at that point was was under-19s reserves and people would turn up at you know on a Saturday could turn up at any you know they could turn up for any any time from 10am through to 10 to 2 really to go and see the game but I suppose a Friday night game people coming from work uh, they're all coming within within an hour of each other which probably led to the cues and so forth that had never really been thought of beforehand other than grand finals perhaps it, it's kind of bizarre and I know you've covered it before Shannon and in fact you guys both did in your 1993 series about Friday night football and how long it took for it to be a thing we're talking 1985 we're talking the very first round of 1985 the mm. first Friday night game they're busting down the door to get there for a big for that big blockbuster Friday night vibe at the MCG, but it still doesn't become a thing for at least another ten years. No, you, you look. I'm a, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine because there's a there's the assumption that Friday night footy was was a, a hit from the start, and that that night was a hit. But right up until even even into the early, the early nineties. There were Friday night games where there, there were under 10,000 people at some of these games. Like the, this is cold in the middle of winter. North were not a high drawing team and at that point weren't really a top team. And they'd, they'd schedule North v Brisbane Bears or North v the Swans. It, it wasn't a marquee fixture at all. Occasionally you put you get a good game on um, that, that was a more of a crowd drawer. But it took a long time and it, it kind of, it's kind of weird that it took a long time to be honest. But I suppose it was a, almost a generational thing that people eventually got used to it. But I think even the the notion, like Friday night games, right up until the into the to 1995, were not even played in full on a Friday night. At 9:30, you would get a, a highlights package rather than the full game played, and it was only 
at that point when they had the delayed coverage where you'd, you'd watch it as live from 8.30 that I think it really took off. Not at my house where my dad rigged up an aerial that was like 10 <laughs> metres into the sky so we oh, could pick brilliant. up time from Gippsland so we could watch the Friday night. So we used to watch it in a really fuzzy reception with the snow all over the tilt, but we could make out what was going on. If you just tuned it just right and the aerial was just tilted the right way, um, you could get Friday night football live from our... Uh, from our family room, I think it was. So that was, um, uh, uh, I don't know why my that's dad thought ge- of that. That's genius from your old man. Uh, that is absolute genius. Not did- only are you getting live Friday night footy, yeah, but you're is. getting regional TV and- ads in between the goals. That is win-win. Literally win. Regional TV. There you go. Yeah. And also, well, 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 yeah, well speaking <laughs> of win, in the yeah. cricket season, you would get the full day. Yeah, you'd get the full yep. day of cricket from what? the MCG uh, during the international summer as well. That was back in the no live against the gate. So you'd get to watch the entire... So friends of mine would come around from school in order to watch um, the entire Boxing Day test match, which they couldn't do at home, where they would only get the final session. So it worked in both winter and, and summer. And you didn't get the the 4.30 on a, for the one day before Christmas where they said... <laughs> see you later come down to the G you could, you could watch it all night exactly exactly you'd watch it the whole way through it felt like we were quite clever but the uh, yeah, the other point here I suppose Gilly is that with Friday Night Football uh, North Melbourne did have that spot pigeonholed I'm just trying to think when that was decoupled I mean even in the even in the late 90s you'd, you'd hear them say well North Melbourne have a, a spiritual hold on, on Friday nights because it was their slot it was their yeah. home game slot um, at the MCG but I'm just trying to remember, when was it the case that North stopped playing the majority of their home I reckon it was on once Channel 9 took the uh, Friday night rights and, ch- and changed it into big event television. I reckon, yeah, I reckon it was the Channel yeah. 9 era that changed it. Oh, it's got to be before then, though, Dylan. I, I don't think, must have been before then. I don't think in sort of 96, 97, 98 that, that North had any more of a stranglehold on Fridays than any other. Mm. I think it's more like when Gilly's talking about in that, in that big North uplift. Were, yeah. North were pretty, pretty on frequent flyers on Friday night, even towards the late 90s. Yeah. Well, I think I think the problem, what what kind of gets, what blurs the lines a little bit is that I think Friday night became mid nineties onwards. Friday night became top teams, good games. North were the top team and playing in a lot of the good games, so it yeah. might not have been un, you know completely, completely sort of uh, taken away from them as such. But it became marquee slot. But it just happened to be that North were in the marquee slot a lot, so you still saw them on a Friday night. But it wasn't a matter of North plays on Friday nights that that where it once was. Going back to 1985, one thing I've taken out of watching this year in electrifying 80s more than anything is that it is hands down the most violent year of the decade. It is a who's who of a, of 1980s biffo. Good, bad, funny, and incredibly ugly. <laughs> like, it starts off with, uh, I think it's David Reese jones getting into a fight with Jacko. Um, well, Re- Re- Reese jones got hit so much mm. in this, in the, in the 80s. He hit blokes, but he got hit so much as well. Um, and then we go into the funny bit in terms of the, oh, wasn't this hilarious? Let's all have a good laugh. But it's probably the commentary soundtrack that makes it um, what it is without the, the disturbing incidents that actually happened on the field. And that is, of course, yes. He's yes, like the of course, we, we could not mention the John Burke incident. Let's have a look at this one on the replay. Well, oh, oh boy. Oh. Did we see right then, right? I thought, <laughs> actually, when I was, oh, he oh, just whacked oh, the umpire. Oh, no. That's unbelievable. Oh, boy. 
Well, this is sensational. The umpire has gone down. Now, there are a number of others coming up to talk to him. Surely we've got to get the Collingwood runner out here and uh, get him off the ground for a start. Oh, he whacked oh, him he wants to be very careful because... Uh, I'd take him off now. The well, boy. he's got him. I he's think got you've got to take the boy off. Put this into perspective. How many reserves games? There's uh, Most reserves games are not broadcast on television. I think it's once a fortnight, Gilly, at the time? What, once a fortnight. In 1985, once a fortnight, a reserves game is, is broadcast. Basically, you've got the... The, the Sydney, when the Sydney Swans are playing in, in Sydney on a Sunday, a home game, that's the broadcast game on a Sunday. And then in the in the off week, they they record, uh, broadcast a reserves game, partly to to sort of fight off the the VFA that was getting a stranglehold or had had a stranglehold on Sunday. So he's a bit stiff that this has lived on for so long when it could have been any game that he did this in and it wouldn't have been recorded and we, we wouldn't even know about but- it. The other thing I'll say... Okay, terrible thing to do. Let's take the crowd element out of it, which we'll probably talk about in a second. <laughs> terrible thing to do by John Burke. You should never touch an umpire. But he didn't actually whack him. He he pushed him over. That's not a punch. Mm-hmm. 10 years was... Given everything else that went on, 10 years, I think, was a bit heavy, which is a controversial call, I know. But he didn't punch the umpire. Um but it's crazy. It's, it's, well, crazy. It's, more, it's more in keeping with what we saw back in, yeah, at the very start, I mean, of the series, we see a similar incident that we talked about on the <laughs> yeah. step of the show. I think it's more in keeping with that. It's perhaps more to do it's with the, the commentary, commentary that makes it. I'm um, saying, you know, when he, I mean, and this isn't in it. Well, this isn't in the electrifying 80s, but the extended version, so the version that went out on, on Channel 7 with Slug Jordan saying, oh, he's, he's jumped in the crowd, oh, and he's given him one too. After he's, all, he's, get oh, he's done, he's done get well. <laughs> well, uh, you just, oh, 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 oh he's going to punch the fellow out of the face in the stand. He's into someone in the stand. Oh, he's given him one too. Yep. Yeah, he's done well. Oh, that's very silly. He's done well. He's done, oh, yeah, he's he's done gone well. the umpire. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, you shouldn't laugh. You, you, oh. I mean, you shouldn't laugh. It's, that- it's hard. It's hard not to. And and, and John Burke, John Burke, in in his um, post playing career, um, did do interviews around this, and he says, that, and he says that even to this day, or when he did the interview, people still come up to him and say, "Oh, he's got to, you got to get the boy off." And it's really, get the boy off. It's really. Oh. Heard it many, many times. Yeah, you got to get the boy off. I mean, I'll still hear that, you know, in a, a joking sort of thing, you know, no matter, you know, even when I was playing and. People would say, oh, you've got to get the boy off. And, and I just think sometimes, look, it's 16 years ago. How long do you want, you know, how long do I have to pay for it? it is that soundtrack that's made a horrendous incident on the footy field into one of, like, the all-time great footy bloopers? And it's just not only just... It's not only just how Ray Slug Jordan is just so like, oh, he's gone, the umpire, and get the boy off. It's Sandy's relaxed. Peter McKenna is relaxed. They just think it is hilarious as they're... I, 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 can, I mean, having watched some YouTube clips of these reserves games, it is the most casual broadcasting. They've clearly done it hungover on the Sunday, um, and they do not pay any attention to the match whatsoever, and it's literally just three guys having a chat. <laughs> And then, and then some action happens because John Burke has gone the umpire. Well, I think there was there was one, one of these games um, which propped up on YouTube where I think Shirley Strawn jumped into the commentary box at one stage for a Hawthorne game. So it was it it, it was um, 
it was a bit of a sideshow, the commentary, but yeah. I mean, John Burke never played a VFL game, but one of the most remembered names of the era because of what he did in that reserves game. The um, Yeah, I like the Shirley Strawn reference. He used to bring the uh, premiership cups here to Tat Slotto on a Thursday after Hawthorne won the premiership. <laughs> He'd bring the cup in, of course, a very loyal uh, Hawthorne man, uh, Shirl, the late Shirl. Uh, yeah, the, the other sort of bits to, to take from that, the slug Jordan element, I mean, you know, how close he was to playing yeah. test cricket and, of course, the Victorian wicketkeeper for such a long time. Um, was he a part of any footy broadcast on television with the exception of the, the reserves games? Like, did he ever bob up on Channel 7 for the main... No, I, th- I think he was literally a fill-in because usually, usually it was Sandy, um, Peter McKenna and Don. So this was... Don wasn't really doing the main games for seven, but was doing the seconds game. So for whatever reason, Don wasn't around that day. So that's where Slug came in. And I th- I can only think the other times that Slug was sort of, I mean, obviously he was well-known kind of character and he was involved with, he was, I mean, he was coaching under-19s at a club most years. So I, I think he might've popped up a little bit later in the piece, you know, in the odd under-19s broadcast, like a grand final so broadcast. So kind of like a shift to Sheehan like type role. Yeah, 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 a little bit like that, um, and might might have might have bobbed up on an early draft. You never know. But really, I, I I don't think he did many of these, and it may have been one of his only ones he ever did, because he, he was a filling. He only, but he'll be always remembered he for that as one, much as anything else he did. He only ever needed one broadcast, and what a magnificent piece of sports commentary uh, he gave us there. Get the boy off. Um, mm. Still on the violence, unfortunately. Um, We've got. We probably say that's the funny violence, and here's the sort of well. I won't do it in chronological order, but we'll look at the the grand final uh, between Hawthorne and Essendon. Is probably one of the all time great grand final brawls. Like that gets a good run every now and then. That's quite ugly, but in terms of the bad, and I mean real bad. Is of course the Lee Matthews, the Lee Matthews Neville, Neville Bruns incident. But even bigger news was the report and subsequent court appearance by Lee Matthews in this incident with Geelong's Neville Bruns. The catch rover went down, and it was revealed later he had suffered a broken jaw. For his part, Matthews collected a broken nose. It was a sad blot on the game, and after being charged by the VFL Commission, Matthews had his playing permit cancelled for a month effectively resulting in a three-week suspension and missing the night grand final. The Hawthorne skipper was also charged by police and was fined $1,000, later reduced to a 12-month good behaviour bond on an assault charge. We we briefly touched on this in the first step, didn't we, the Mark Jackson factor, and that's on the commentary as well, isn't it, saying that, you know... um, uh, the, I don't care what anyone says. Jackson started all of this, and all I've got to say is I don't care. This who is thinks, a disgrace. I don't care who thinks Jackson can play football. He's virtually started all this. Uh, obviously, Mark Jackson isn't the reason why Lee Matthews belted Neville Bruns, but it kind of comes back to this. This uh, he was the uh, he was the, um, the the tissue paper, wasn't he, to, to this ridiculous game uh, as it spiraled out of control in the final quarter. And Matthews, for reasons that have never been adequately explained, uh, just saw Neville Bruns running past, and 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 King hit him, and uh, and broke his jaw, and and the, the the brawl that ensues, and of course, Lethal had his nose broken, as the square up. We see the footage next day on World of Sport with Alan Jeans and and the and the the coverage. Well, I think there's a lot of Hawthorne supporters out there and Geelong supporters. A guy has got a broken jaw, in two places, Alan. Uh, 
Did you speak to the player concerned after the game? Have you given your opinion or...? Look, Peter, if you want to continue with this discussion, and this morning you selected two things. You wanted to go back and dig skeletons out of the cupboard. Now, I can just say to you that certain incidents just happened recently. Now, if you want to go back, it's just as embarrassing for your club. I can recite incidents against the club that you played for, the same as against Geelong. If you want to go back into these incidents. Now, I think you have a certain responsibility to the game, the same as I do. I said I don't condone the thing, and I left it at that. Now, you want to continue with it. Now, just leave it at that at this particular stage. The coverage Thanks, of the story. I mean, it was, must have been a massive yarn. I mean, Lee Matthews, the, the greatest player of his generation, charged by the police, deregistered by the league, involved in this awful incident well, um, uh, and uh, and being right in the thick of it in what was his final season. I mean, it was all it was a huge well, story. It was the biggest, one of the biggest, it, if not the it biggest. Was, it, I, was, so I was about four years old when this happened, so you don't really know what's going on. But... I remember it being this image that was constantly pushed on television. So it's one of my first footy memories, real footy memories of un- of that of something that happened. And one thing that you don't actually see this on the on the electrifying eighties, and you don't actually see it very often. Um, but there is footage around of it. Is that, and, and I always remember this for some reason. Is that after after it all kind of dies down. They go to um, Matthews being carried off with his broken nose, which incidentally Steve Hocking gave him the broken nose, um, who's, who's now yeah. doing what he does now uh, in retaliation for what he'd done to Bruns. And Jacko running at him as he's sort of being helped off and and sort of going at him. Uh, and, and I always remember that there was a, a Hawthorne trainer or something sort of holding Matthews up with a yellow raincoat and... Jacko rips the hood off the raincoat, like just the most bizarre thing to do. Just rips the hood off the off the raincoat of this guy that's holding Matthews up. It's yeah, it's just one of those indelible memories, which is a really you know mm. shitty mm. thing that, that happened. But um, it, it was it was huge. It was everywhere. And and Matthews wasn't reported on the day. That's the whole you know. I think the way I understand it, the whole reason that the the police became involved is that he wasn't reported on the day, and there wasn't a mechanism like trial by video to report, and it caused caused such outrage that there was this way of you know they did it in a way where eventually he was charged, but the league then deregistered him for for a number of weeks um, to sort of seem to discipline him. Has that ever happened before or since the deregistration mechanism? I feel like it's only ever been talked about in uh, the context. Of I think Matthews the only I'd... player that I can recall that's potentially been deregistered would have been Ben Cousins for completely different circumstances because he was deregistered in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Mm. He was deregistered by the AFL. Yeah, n- not not yeah. for that makes sense. Yeah, there's not very different, other very different the circumstances. Suspension. But yeah. Um, I think that's the only one that springs to mind, but I'm sure if there was another, um, one of our fine listeners uh, will uh, correct us and let us know, and we do appreciate those pickups. Uh, we really do. Um, to get on to a good bit of 1985, because we've spoken a bit about the violence, um, the montages. This is when the real ace montages oh, of electrifying 80s kick in, because there isn't really many in the first half, but then towards the midway point, we get the best of the best montages. I've got a theory on this. I've got a theory that they played week one on television. And of course, there was no montages. You went through the names of the marks as you went through. 
and they realised that they could make some improvements before week two. Because remember, this is the first season of week two and the production team are like, nah, let, let's, uh, let's run some music over the marks of the year. And it means you get less information as it happens. Like we don't actually know who won Mark of the Year in 1985 from this. We assume Warwick Kappa, but I mean... Yeah, no, I well, know, I, what I do know is that it's definitely the... F- um, on the basis of... I was going to say Ray Kappa, that is definitely the first sighting of Kappa in Electrifying 80s is in that montage. <laughs> right. Yeah, because he's featured twice yeah. in the montage. But yeah, the music, I shazammed it on my phone thinking to myself, I'd love to know um, what this track is. And it comes up with nothing. So- working assumption is that it's from a, a film soundtrack at the time but whatever it was was so obscure <laughs> that it doesn't feature on Shazam which is meant to capture like yeah. every bit well, of recorded music Adam, we ever talk made about some sort of classical score Sorry, I've just got to pick I've got you a, up on, I've got a second I was going to pick you up on the Shazam thing believe me I've tried I've tried with the backing production music of Electrifying 80s <laughs> I've tried with that montage I think it might be I, what I suspect <laughs> is it might be from the soundtrack to the Untouchables which Seven uses a bit in their uh, footy product because the end theme to that movie is what they play with the Brownlow medalist and have been doing so for 30 years. So I think it might be from a film at the okay. time. That's that's my that's my suspicion. I've I've got a second theory on why the montages were used and not the um and not the standard just going through each mark. So you take the fact that I, th- I, it would be pretty certain that they would have looked at each year's, that was the season that was to kind of put these together. That was the season that was, was not made in 1985 or 1986. Ooh. And my theory is that because that, that wasn't, they just went to the, Brownlow footage because remember every year at the Brownlow there would be a montage with the soundtrack with marks and they've just and and basically that 85 one and we'll talk about the next year's one in a, in a minute they both appeared on those Brownlow um well yeah on those Brownlow broadcasts so I think they've just pulled it from the Brownlow that broadcasts is- that is, that that is that is that must be right because eighty seven onwards we're back, back to the names. To, yeah. The music's gone. It's only eighty five, eighty six. So the the answer is there was no greater season that was in eighty five or eighty six. I wonder why. That <laughs> don't know. Was. What, what a shame though that they didn't make it, and what a shame that they don't make it anymore. But uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm. That's I'm. That's what I can work out because it it was something that that was in my head for a while as to what what was going on here. So. All right. And, the, the, and it happens again in 86, which we'll get to. Oh, that is something to really look forward to. Boy, boy, am I looking forward to the talk about the 1986 Marx montage. Stay tuned. That's a terrific <laughs> forward sell, folks. Stay tuned to the Electrifying 80s recap here on the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Um, in true Electrifying 80s style, we're just going to smash through some significant points before we get on to the next year. Young man Brad Hardy wins the Brownlow. Good on him. Uh, if you pick up a football record from 1985, you can purchase a car from him from Binks Ford Footscray. Fantastic. Uh, and he also did ads for Swan Lager, which is another fantastic YouTube clip, which we <laughs> posted on our social. Then the knockers went to town. Too slow, too sharp, too loose, son. The p- 
Footscray makes the finals that year as well. Um, and the grand final, Essendon win, there was a brawl. And players from both sides let out the tension that generally builds up before a grand final. Players fought, wrestled and jostled each other and it took some time before umpires could restore order. Adam kicks eight. Adam, do you want to dwell on the 85 grand final? I don't think so, but you might want to acknowledge something. I, I yeah, I I rather yep. talk about the prelim where, where Lee Matthews plays on Brad Hardy in the last quarter and, and, and turns the game around um, with Hawthorne down there at VFL Park. So, you know, it all comes full circle really with Matthews um in his penultimate game, uh getting Hawthorne to the final day. But yeah, Essendon clearly the best team in nineteen eighty. Yeah, and the, the the feeling at this time that Essendon have, have well well, winning their second flag in a row is that this Essendon team may be the best team ever and who that who is ever going to be able to beat this Essendon team they were part of the reason that of that brawl the way I understand it was that not only was Essendon the best team best team at the at the time but also was seen as the the roughest and toughest team at the time and there was a sort of thinking from the Hawthorne guys that you know if some if something happens we're gonna we're gonna go today and we're gonna take it up to them and, and mm. just see what happens we, we might be able to rattle them if we if we um Go, go the knuckle, so to speak, if if the opportunity arises, which wasn't necessarily the Hawthorne way. Yeah, and that that vision of Dermy running in about thirty <laughs> seconds after it finishes, <laughs> well, not finishes, thirty seconds after it starts. Here comes Dermot, who's running, um, running as quickly yeah. as Carl Lewis. <laughs> he at couldn't the, help uh, himself. Or as uh, Lou, Mi- I think that's when Lou Richards gets up and about and says, "This is the best I've ever seen in a grand final." Oh golly, Peter, talk about stacks on the bill. <laughs> Look at him playing it. This is the best I've ever seen for. Oh, how excited did they get when there was fights? Nothing got a commentator more excited in that era than a fight. Lou, Peter, Sandy, particularly those three in that era. Just their voice would raise us. I think I've told. I've told the I've told the story. I think on the on the the, the last episode I was on Dylan. I've seen footage of where if, you know two minutes into a game there hasn't been there hasn't really been any sort of punch on or anything. And and um, Lou turns around to Sandy. Lou turns around to Landy, sort of saying, "It's not very fiery so far, Pete. What, what's what's going on? He's upset. He's affronted that there hasn't been a punch up in the first five minutes of the game." <laughs> How good. Priorities. That's what people want. They're just giving the people what they want and people want beef. Tests prove no battery lasts longer than Energizer. Told ya, no battery lasts longer than Energizer. LeagueTees.com.au, the official partner, sponsor, just associate 
of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. And, uh, well, since last episode, part one of the Electrifying 80s, the T-shirts, the badges, the hoodies have been flying off the shelves at leaguetees.com.au because this is called Fashion Look it up. Be it a Peter Landy sensational 70s t-shirt. Be it a VFA team. I can see Brighton Penguins. I can see Sunshine Crows. I can see Northgate Dragons. Oh, be it, uh, what else they got there at leaguetees.com.au? They've got South Melbourne. They've got, uh, they've got, they've even partnered with Siren Sport Collective. Uh, I love women's sport. That's a ripping tee there. Uh, there's cricket. There's footy. There's basketball. There's, oh. It's just a one-stop fashion shop. If there's one place you are going to buy clothing from, it's leaguetees.com.au. If there's one place you're going to do impulse online buying from, make sure it's leaguetees.com.au. Retro footy gear from the retro footy fans made for pure retro footy freaks. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast since we started and you haven't even bought anything from leaguetees.com.au, what on earth are you doing? Get online now, go to leaguetees.com.au and just buy some t-shirts. You all need clothes. These are the clothes that are must-wear. You'll be you'll be allowed everywhere with a leaguetees.com.au. I was wearing a, a leaguetees.com.au shirt in uh, one of the most exclusive nightclubs in uh, in town. Got let in straight away. They said, oh, is that a, uh, a leaguetees.com.au uh, Mark Zanotti t-shirt? The bouncer said, and yeah, you just, just let me in. It's fantastic. Uh, if you're on board with the electrifying 80s, you're on board with leaguetees.com.au. It's the official partner of the Australian Football Film Festival and it's the best fashion in town. That's leaguetees.com.au. <laughs> Um, let's rip into 1986. Carlton and Hawthorne unveiled some of the finest interstate recruits to come to Victoria in the opening round of the 1986 season. Well, it's a feel-good recruiting story about battlers finally getting a chance to play for little clubs and equality is alive and well in the VFL <laughs> in 1986 because in round one, uh, two poor struggling clubs, Carlton and Hawthorne, unveil, give chance to little battlers from unknown football places such as Western Australia and South Australia. One for the good guys. I, I always wonder whatever happened to that Commodore that, 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 that sealed the deal with John Platten. Uh, to get into Hawthorne rather than Carlton, and uh, and and also the alternate history, where I mean, what if Platten does end up at Carlton alongside Dorotich and Kernahan at that juncture? I mean, that 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 changes the course of uh, of, of the second half of the decade. Imagine that the ins the ins for Carlton in round one: Kernahan, Bradley, Motley, Dorotich, Platten. They're pretty handy. Pretty handy. Yeah, especially when they, I mean, obviously the Motley story we'll talk about mm. in a moment, but to those that watched a lot of South Australian football in the first half of the 80s, I think my friend Andrew Faulkner, um, colleague from uh, the Cricket Press Box, uh, adamant that he was the best of the lot. And if mm. not for what happened, that he would have uh, he would have been uh, the defining player of, of his generation in the VFL as, as well as what he was able to do in the SANFL uh, early in the 80s. There's another bit of footage that we've mentioned throughout the first episode that there's always some stock standard footage that from here on in is used all the time. 
Um, and in 1986, we definitely get that with the shot of uh, John Devine, the Geelong coach, preaching and doing the sort of Peter Garrett type moves uh, around the huddle there. It, it's quite iconic, that vision. But none of the new faces could match the hot gospeling style of Geelong's John Devine. The Cats had lured Devine back from Tasmania to replace Tom Hafey. But when Geelong trailed badly against Fitzroy in round one, it was obvious Devine wanted to get his message home immediately. The yeah, it, it didn't didn't really go that well for uh, for, for uh, Divine. For, he only lasted a few years and um, didn't really have a hell of a lot of success, unfortunately for him. Uh, a pretty significant thing happened in uh, 1986. Talking about feel good uh, stories and one for the battlers and equality in football was when uh, a man by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Edelstein uh, was in charge of the Swans and owned the Sydney Swans. <laughs> And, um, well, pretty much bought his own football team and created a super side that was dominating the competition. Um, and there's what? shots of, I think it's when the Swans by uh, beat Collingwood at Victoria Park. And, um, well, the Magpie fans took it really well at the time. Barry Mitchell got the Swans up by a point in a controversial finish, but the fans were obviously upset as they gave the umpires a hostile farewell. I think the umpires are getting some curry off the Collingwood supporter, but I don't know why I thought they uh, let the game go when the press was really on and it was very difficult to make decisions there and get freakies. So the final score is a great win and a great game. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 I mean, you say Edelston bought the club, I... I Think he, he was the public figure of, of the investors in. was that the, public, the club. We know the that. The public yeah. figure who didn't really have the money, but uh, he certainly enjoyed the fame. And mm. yeah, they, they went out, they got Greg Williams, um, David Bolton, Bernard Tui, Merv Nagel, Jared Healy, Jim Edmund. Like all these guys were like stars at their clubs pretty much. And, and they did that in one year. And this is when the salary cap had just been brought in. But, you know, the Swans were, they needed the Swans to work. So I don't think the salary cap was really being policed at that point. But yeah, yeah. And that, the, the winning at Victoria Park was kind of like the acceptance that the Swans are the real deal. Yeah, with the umpires in danger as they're, as they're, as they're walking off at the end in that game. But the, I was thinking about this, this Swans team uh, during the week when we were seeing the graphics flash up about, most consecutive losses and the state that North are in at the moment, for example. Um, to think that only six years after this, the Swans are in um, in such a state that they could end up out of the competition. And Gilly, we mm. talked about this in 93, how close they were to the brink. Um, but yet, yeah, I mean, only five or six seasons before, they're playing a back-to-back final series and they are the destination yeah. club, albeit briefly. One of the actual feel-good stories about 1986, we mentioned, you know, Hawthorne and Carlton and just buying... You know, recruiting whoever they felt like from West Australia, South Australia, and the Swans just being open checkbook football. But one of the good battler stories that we do get out of this season is, of course, the form of Fitzroy, um, because this is actually the final season Fitzroy feature in the finals, mm. and they actually have quite a tremendous run to get there. Yeah, and this is the backdrop of this run to their 80, 86 finals has got even more depth that doesn't doesn't go into in this. But through most of the nine eighty six season, there was the story of that Fitzroy were on its last legs anyway and that they were going to go to Brisbane. So that next year is when the Brisbane Bears come in and West Coast, but it was it was foreshadowed for a lot of 1986 that Fitzroy were going to move to Brisbane and the backdrop of, of the season and this sort of almost this final fling um, in, in as, a, as the team from Fitzroy. And they 
win a lot of games towards the end of the year to to get into the finals and then have a have a bit of a, a really good run in the finals too, uh, which you know almost becomes a, a real fairy tale story. Yeah, the Mickey Conlon goal on a day that uh, many people say is the coldest ever at VFL Park. You know, freezing cold, heavy wet ball, and and Conlon with yeah twenty seconds to go in the forward pocket there to sink Essendon. That's it. But once again, the Lions showed their fighting spirit, rushing the ball forward to Mick Conlon, who snatched the game in the last couple of minutes with this goal. Conlon's got it. He could kick a goal to put him in front. He has. Great memory for Fitzroy supporters. Uh, I mean, yes, they play for a further 10 seasons, but that's the last time they win a final. And they, they beat Sydney in a first semi the next week, which is just as good a game, which sometimes gets overshadowed by that. But yeah. um, they really, you know, Bernie Quinlan had a great season and a whole bunch of guys had Paul Ruse almost wins the Brownlow and all sorts of things. So it was just a, a vintage year for, for the Lions. Now, there's something that's very close to all of our hearts in 1986 and the biggest film at the time was of course a movie called Top Gun and uh, the soundtrack to Top Gun is rather iconic but for anyone who grew up watching Electrifying 80s they don't associate Take My Breath Away by Berlin as the song used in the peak romantic moment during Top Gun oh no everyone listening to this podcast associates Take My Breath Away as the song used for the marks of the year 1986. Uh, and there were some breathtaking marks, so to speak. And the marks of the year were spectacular as always. Dylan and a bit of a bit of like chart nerd stats to go with this, which which adds to what I my theory about how it was pulled from the Brownlow, is that it this song was not the first single because um, of course Danger Zone, yeah, of course. Kenny Loggins was the first single yeah. from the Top Gun soundtrack, but the second single was Take My Breath Away, and. It hit number two on the Australian charts in grand final week 1986. So you can see that it would have been the hottest song um, in Australia at the time. And what a time to sort of capitalise by throwing it on the brown low for the marks of the year. Is it the greatest marks montage? Oh, greatest. There's so many good marks in this and and certainly the Take My Breath Away um Take My Breath Away is the is the classic i don't think I don't think there's been a better song put to marks they should use it every year take my breath away because that's what a great mark does and, and what a brown light was too i mean given that i love the fact that it was used there because that's the that's the the dipper never say no to a, a free meal. feed it was a, um, you can't uh, say no to a just come night. here for the free feed uh did you give yourself any chance early in the camp no chance whatsoever i come here for the free feed actually <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, at um at the Southern Cross Hotel, which of course these days is a 
is the government building um, that, uh, that, uh, that, well, I, I certainly remember working in years ago there on the corner of Exhibition Street and Burke Street, but um, where, uh, yeah, where Dipper wins on 17 votes alongside Diesel. Diesel looks so angry in the pictures there too. I think that might be because he thought he was going to blitz it in and here comes Dipper um, and uh, and splits the difference with him. And of course, we're, we're past the terrible days of countback, so they both get a medal. Do you reckon Greg Williams was pleased to share that medal with Dipper? Well, well, he might have thought that he was a slightly better player than Dipper. I mean, Diesel's not not shy about his own ability, <laughs> and rightly so, mind you. But uh, I don't know if anyone's anyone's asked the question to Diesel why the look were you just overwhelmed, or were you thinking, "What the hell's Dipper doing up here with me?" <laughs> and then <laughs> you mentioned in terms of goal kicking the uh, the super boots. Uh, the super boot scenes uh, deals, uh, which were glorious, weren't they? Oh, would have, actually, it was Vic, um, uh, we, we the 1986 uh, Fitzroy's home ground was Victoria Park. Of course, yes. Well, which is where I was going to say BT, yeah. Brian Taylor, um, brings up the ton. On the same day, Collingwood's Brian Taylor was aiming to become the first player since Peter McKenna to kick 100 goals in a season for the Magpies. It was a shaky beginning for Taylor, but with a free kick and thousands of fans lining the boundary line, he slotted through his 100th. I think a lot of the time we view him through the prism of what happened in the, the 1990 final series where he where he eventually makes way and doesn't play in the grand final after kicking a couple of goals in the last term of the... Would I be right in saying a couple of goals in the last quarter of the drawn yep. game against West Coast drawn, Eagles? The drawn qualifying. After the siren. Yeah. yeah. Drawn qualifying final, yeah. Um, but yeah, in 86 when he moves to Collingwood from, from, uh, from, uh, from Richmond... I mean, yeah, he's a divisive figure these days. A lot of people don't really um, appreciate the way that he calls football, but um, he was a hell of a player. Yeah, and there's the story to that one is that he actually actually tore his groin. Um, he was on, I think, 98 goals going to that week, and he tore his groin basically in the in the opening minutes of that game, and was hobbling around and got paid a free kick. And the, the late Spud Frawley was playing on him and got paid a free kick for holding on, which might not have really been a free kick, but um, and sort of kicked the goal to bring up his 100 and then limped off, and that was it. So, so it only just got there. Adam, 1986 ends up being a Hawthorne Premiership year. Um, you've obviously watched the 86 Grand Final a fair few times amongst the many. In fact, I think just about every Hawthorne Premiership is available on DVD. <laughs> You're one of the lucky clubs to have that uh, status. Um, how do you rate the 86 Grand Final? Because it, it doesn't really get in the classic Grand Final talk, I don't think. No, it doesn't. And I think that's... it's uh, Especially after what Gilly mentioned with 85, this meant a tremendous amount to Hawthorne. Uh, getting through the way they did uh, and then... On the day itself, the first quarter, um, they dominate. And the Gary Bacanara goal from in front of the MCC off the ground. Lux of fortune, says um, Lou Richards. And either in the air or on the ground, the Hawks' Gary Bacanara was in great touch. Well, fuck that. Not Lux of fortune. <laughs> Gary Bacanara was a fucking genius. So it's, um, there's no luck associated with it. But no, then Jason Dunstall giving Bruce Dool a bath in... In Bruce Brustel's, um last game, Gary Ayres wins the Norm Smith, but it easily could have been Gary Bacanara, who was brilliant from from the get go. And of course, there's the Bacanara 
backstory from 1983 where you know he only plays the first 10 minutes not even first five minutes of that grand final so um, there's an element of uh, him uh, proving that he can do it on, on the biggest stage and wins his second premiership but yeah what a great week for the club with, with Dippy Domenico winning the Brownlow on Monday night winning the flag um, with this yeah rejuvenated team as well you look at the difference between 83 and 86 they had they had done a pretty good job of um, of filling in some blanks uh, after having lost in 84 and 85. And there's a great shot of the crowd at the end of the 86 grand final with the sign, uh, I think it's the Sir Robert Dippietta Medico cheer squad. And did, yes. and don't they actually, yes, right. don't, isn't after the game, they put they have a banner that Dipper runs through on his own? I think so, I, yes. Am I, am I there, no, I think this? there was a banner. I think there was a yeah. post-game banner. Like they get their medals and they're running the lap of honour and then the cheer squad brings out a banner that's like, well done Dipper for winning the Brownlow and he runs through it solo. <laughs> That's this is a thing. I've never seen this that. This is a thing, I'm sure. If I've, if I've just invented it, the, and yet, slap me, but but I'm pretty sure this has happened. Yeah. No, no. And and, and Dylan, you talk a little bit about the 86 grand final mm. uh, with Tony Wilson in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Dermy Hits and Memories um, video recap. And Dermy oh, in the change has room. Has he got some strut? To Peter Donnegan. <laughs> has he got some strut? Oh, does he ever. G'day, Scoop. Well done, old boy. Thanks, good. Now, look, you're normally such a shy, reserved character. Can you put into words how you feel there? Oh, pretty good. I feel like a million dollars. You know? I like the way you look. <laughs> how, how are you, Scoop? Come over here and talk to... It's, it's just Dermy at his most... Um, it's just when he goes from being sort of young, brash footballer <laughs> and transitioning into the to the Dermy that we... He, he basically becomes WWF today. wrestler at that yeah. point. It's, um, it's brilliant. Yes, hey, right. um, before we wrap up 1986, now you'll recall in the first instalment of Electrifying 80s, we uncovered never-before-seen or only broadcast once footage from the original television broadcast. Of course, that was Sandy Roberts interviewing Kevin Bartlett about his take on football in the 1980s. Well, there is a second interview in the original TV broadcast of Electrifying 80s, uh, and it's just it's at the end of 1986 in the uh, TV broadcast, and Sandy is now joined in the studio by recent, the then recently retired North Melbourne coach, John Kennedy, uh, for his take on football in the 80s, and as promised, we're going to play you that interview in full. And we'll return to the electrifying 80s shortly, but first a man who came through not only the 80s, but also the 50s, 60s and 70s. I hope I don't make John Kennedy sound too old. Thank you, John, for joining us. The 80s saw tremendous change in the game. I know the interchange started in 78, but it really came into effect in 80 and other things. Has it all been good for the game? Oh, yes. I think that the uh, by and large the changes that have uh, come into the game have been for the game's benefit, and uh, I hope it stays that way, that the... Uh, the changes that are made are made because of the uh, the game itself rather than the, uh, uh, well, other reasons that can prompt change. Do you think there perhaps has been an overuse of handball? Well, it may have appeared that way, and the one of the rules that uh, was brought in that uh, after, um, after a player gets a free kick, he must kick the ball, which I, I have some doubts about whether that's uh, working or not because it seems to me to be against the flow of the game. A player gets the ball, he's under pressure, uh, he's given a free kick, a teammate calls for it and he naturally hand passes and it seems a bit, bit harsh to uh, stop a natural inclination on, on the uh, player's part but uh, I don't think there's too much handball. I think um, 
some sides, uh, well, all the good sides have made a feature of it. Right. It has been an attacking, attacking uh, weapon in their armoury. John, a few years ago, all coaches were asked if they could have one player from another team, who would they take? Yeah. And bearing in mind it was a few years ago, you mm. took Tony Lockett. Did you visualise then a champion? Oh, there were two things operating. I thought that Tony is, uh, was a great player, and I thought he would be even better. And uh, also at uh, North, I think we probably, at that stage, uh, it might have been just when Ross Glendinning, we lost Ross and right. we could have done with a full forward. But, uh, you know, I think he's, uh, he is a great player, Tony Lockett. Uh, two quick questions. The best player you've coached? Well, um, I've had the privilege of coaching uh, Lee Matthews and Graham Arthur and Wayne Schimmelbush and Keith Gregg, and uh, I think they're all pretty great players, really. Right, now let's terrific. separate the quartet. The best player you've seen? Well, I, I suppose really among uh, the ones, I suppose those players among the ones uh, I've seen, I've seen most of, and certainly I think they are great players. Among the opposition players, I think uh, I was impressed this year with... Um, Kernahan of Carlton, I thought he played a great game in the day they beat us up at Princess Park. I thought he showed a great deal of knowledge of the game and uh, in the last quarter I thought he sort of just about controlled the game on his own. So I was pretty impressed with that. John, thank you for your time tonight. Enjoy your semi-retirement. Well, it's a very John Kennedy perspective on the future of football. He's, an, he, he's bemused by the idea of interchange, uh, overuse of handballs and forcing kicks from freeze. And um, I, think he, I think he's a big fan of Stephen Kernahan. He was. He he, uh, he he identifies Kernahan as the best he's seen, which is That's quite the um, quite the accolade yeah. for Sticks. Um, and yeah, it was the right year to have Kennedy on as well because '86 was where North go okay and they beat Essendon. And Kennedy giving it big when walking off the ground, and that's probably his last great day, I suppose, as a coach. Yeah, he had that uh, that crash set up uh, towards the end of the decade with players like Carey coming through, Longmire likewise, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a particularly productive period for the club overall, North Melbourne, but, um, yeah, the fact that he had that opportunity after finishing with Hawthorne to have a different kind of coaching career, having been such a massive part of uh, the success at Hawthorne, uh, laying the foundation at North, who, of course, went on to um, deliver on that promise in the decades that follows. Part two of three of the electrifying 80s of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. We covered 1985 through to 1986, the mid-80s. Coming up next, part three, 1987 to 1989. Footy goes national, there's a change of broadcaster, and the game will never be the same again. Don't forget to like, share, Leave a comment and a review, subscribe, and all the things that you need to do with your favourite podcast, the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Spread the word. And, of course, thanks to Colo Gilly, the mighty leaguetees.com.au, and, of course, Nick Bleaker for use of the studio. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name's Dylan Leach. We'll catch you for part three of the electrifying 80s. (laughs) 